I want to take a look at the outline of this book. A lot of times I'll do a brief review because especially for people that weren't here in the last week or a few weeks or whatever, but this is review, but I want, to, I want to look specifically, the very first study that we did in the book of Romans was we looked at and we outlined the entire book. The reason I'm doing this is we're coming to the end of a major section in the book of Romans this morning. If you've been with us, we have been talking about wrath and judgment for a while. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of sick of wrath and judgment. No, I'm not, truly. But, but I mean... It, In order to really understand and to be able to assess the good news, that's what gospel means, you've got to have a grip on the bad news. And this first three chapters of Romans is bad news. We'll see this morning, we're going to look at a 14-count indictment as though we're in a court of law. And then the verdict that follows that indictment. Uh, This is heavy stuff. But we're going to end with taking just a preview of the first few words of, the, of verse 21, which is the beginning of the next section in this book. So uh, without further introduction, we looked at in verses 1 to 15, the opening salutation and, and Paul's purpose, the Apostle Paul, for writing this letter to the church at Rome. Don't need to belabor that, uh, but the purpose that we see here is that you and I need, not optional, need righteousness. So righteousness by definition is is to be in right relationship with God. Uh, That's the vertical. That's the gospel. We don't make our own. And that's Paul's point in these three chapters. It has to be given to us as a gift The other aspect about righteousness is the result of being in right relationship with God. We live, we are called to live righteous lives, to live righteously, to have the righteousness that's been imputed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, the working of his spirit within, working out. As a response to his grace, we want to live rightly. The problem with man is, is he wants to skip the first step rely on his own righteousness in order to get to God. And Paul is saying, you can't do that. It's an affront to the cross. So as we look at this in verses one or chapter one, verses 16 and 17, we looked at the theme of this letter, the theme of Paul's writing. In verse 16, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, When we talk about Jews and Gentiles, that's what's implied by Greek here. A a Gentile is anybody that's not Jewish. So understand that's you and I, unless you're Jewish, then you're the other group. What we're seeing here is both groups are addressed. Both groups fall woefully short. So he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just, that's another word for righteous, the righteous shall live by faith. So when we look at the the need for righteousness, we we see here in in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, which is where we're going to go today. We're going to wrap up this section. Uh, I've referred to it before as the great indictment, the condemnation that flows to all men and all women. We've looked first at the condemnation of the Gentile in, in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and what the cause of that condemnation is, simply willful ignorance. I don't want to know, I don't want to hear, put my fingers in my ears, go, la, 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 la. I, I, don't want, I don't want anything to do with God. No, 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 that's not me. 
However, the consequence of that condemnation, of that willful ignorance, is divine abandonment. We've looked at that. That is one of the most intense sections in all of God's Word, that he says, if you want to abandon me, I'll strive with you, but not forever. I'll abandon you. And I believe, as I've taught, that our nation is in that place, that we are experiencing the beginning of the wrath of abandonment, because we as a nation have abandoned God. And God, in turn, is abandoning us. Does that mean the door's not open for repentance? Of course not. But that's the direction that we're going. So the second section that we looked at was the condemnation of the moralist. Remember, the first section was the condemnation of the Gentile, and that's what he's talking about, this whole abandonment thing. And and then he goes on in in chapter 2, in the first 16 verses, he says that living a moral life, essentially, is not a substitute for the cross. You can't get to God because you're not like them. And, and that's what he says, essentially. And by judging that you're not like them, you're saying that you have a standard that you live by, which is actually to profess that you understand that there's a standard and you condemn yourself by that same standard. He uses that standard to condemn others, proves he has the knowledge of the standard that condemns him. The third thing we looked at, we looked at last week, and we're going to finish this section this morning, is the condemnation of the Jew. Last week, we looked at the fact that the Jew did not, he could not keep the law of God. Uh, In in the first 29 verses of chapter 2, we saw that he boasted in his own self-righteousness. We looked at three ways that the Jew boasts that Paul outlines in chapter 2, boasting in their knowledge of, or their lack of the knowledge of, the law of God. Well, we have the law of God. We have the oracles of God. We'll talk about that this morning a little bit more. Problem was that they didn't observe it. They didn't keep it. They were the trustees of the law, but they didn't apply it to themselves. Their hearts were never transformed. We also talked about boasting in one's heritage. Well, I'm a Jew. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, it's one of my favorite passages about this. He says, man, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a a muckety-muck in Jewish culture. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. He goes on to say, I count it all as, the polite word is dung. (laughs) It's useless. You can't boast in your heritage. We applied that to us where we see, we look around, we see that so many tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people call themselves Christians that aren't because they're relying on their heritage. Well, I'm a Catholic. Well, I'm a Lutheran. I am so glad that we're not going to be there bowing on our face before the throne of God and saying, what were you, a Baptist, Nazarene? What what, what, what were you? That's not going to happen. You either belong to him or you do not. Those are secondary issues. Yeah, we call this church Calvary Chapel, but that doesn't mean that that's that's the thing. That's the name on the door. Is there life inside? Is the life of God in our church. And yes, it is. I believe that God has blessed us with a healthy church because we're teaching God's word and we're loving one another. We're carrying out the things that God says are important from his word. We're not boasting in our heritage. At least I pray we're not. The third thing that we looked at was boasting in religious rites. Remember, we looked at at circumcision and Paul says, you know what? You hang a lot of weight on this whole thing of circumcision because it was the mark of the covenant for the law, for the old covenant, the law of Moses. But you don't go, it doesn't go any deeper than that. You're looking at the mark. You're putting your attention on this sign 
and you're totally blowing off what it represents. You looked at, 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 at justice and mercy and compassion, the things Jesus said, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier provisions of the law. So there's no boasting. This morning, we're going to look at Paul sums up uh, in the first eight verses of chapter three that the Jew didn't believe the promises of God. They just didn't believe it. Folks, universal principle, <clears throat> you will always, always, always act on what you believe. You don't believe something, you can give lip service to it all day long. It's not going to be worked out in your life. They gave lip service to the law, but it didn't penetrate the heart. Actually, that was part of the intent of the law, was to illustrate sin, to show man his sinfulness. Uh, I would love to rabbit trail into the book of Galatians and go into an exposition on that, because that was what, that's what Paul says. He says, you know, it was your schoolmaster, it was it was your tutor to lead you to Christ, to show you your need. It can't save you. The second thing we're going to look at this morning is the conclusion, the condemnation that flows to all men in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. And, and, and the reason I want to end with verse 21 is because this is not a pretty picture. I, I don't know about you, but as I study these things, they pierce. I invite you, apply God's word to your life this morning. Apply these things that the apostle says, they're hard things. But folks, again, you can't understand the depth of God's love, the, the, the magnificence of his grace. If you don't allow the spirit of God to pierce through your own depravity to, to see your condition before God, every one of us, and this is important, this isn't to beat anybody up, but it's to illuminate and to illustrate by God's word. What God says the human condition is like and why there was no hope for us in and of ourselves and why from eternity past, God said they need a savior. They need to be saved, not from Rome. That's why the people were sideways about Jesus, but they need to be saved from themselves. That's the point of the gospel. In this section, we're going to see a 14-count, as I mentioned, a 14-count indictment. You hear about a grand jury. They, they meet, they confer, and they discuss the evidence and all of that. And, and at the end of that, they either take a pass because there's not enough evidence to indict someone. But when they hand down an indictment, that means you're in trouble. You've been indicted. And what Paul does here, and, and we'll, I'll look at the technique he uses in a few minutes because it's fascinating. By the way, this is some really good literature. This is some really good writing. I mean, the way he goes about this is brilliant. Uh, and I just appreciate that about it. But he hands down this, in, this divine indictment. And then he concludes with the verdict. So as we get into verses 1 through 8, Paul now summarizes, continues the subject of the guilt of the Jews. Uh, with a series, he, what he does, he employs a series of questions and answers. And, and this is, again, this is fascinating to me. The questioning proceeds as follows. What he does is he uses an imaginary Jewish objector as if he were cross-examining the apostle. So what he's doing is he's setting up an argument where he's arguing both sides. There's, and I'll call him the objector or uh, the, the critic in that sense. And then Paul will come and answer his own questions. And so I, we're going to bounce back and forth. I want to ask you that uh, if you're used to sleeping through the service, don't <laughs> right now. 
because you'll miss it. I mean, this is like a really good movie that's technical. You know, again, some movies you can just kind of sit back and uh, I call it mindless drivel. <laughs> you can just put your brain on coast. Don't do that with this because you'll get lost. I, I'm serious. I was talking to Rick on the phone yesterday. And I had some questions that uh, I asked him about this and, and we were discussing the fact that passages like this, if you don't teach them properly, I'm going to do my best, you can get people lost in the weeds. Like, what on earth is he talking about? So understand, the way I'm going to present this is from the standpoint of the objector and then the apostle Paul, because Paul stands as the objector and then he answers his own question, his own issue. Wonderful, wonderful writing in this, wonderful literature. So rush up here. Verse one, he says, and this is the objector. What advantage then has the Jew or what profit? What is the profit of circumcision? Remember, he's been talking about that up till now in chapter two. No chapter breaks in, in God's word. I mean, in the original, this is a flow that's continuing from what we looked at in chapter two. He, essentially, what he's saying is, all, is if all that you have just said in chapter two is true, that we Jews have nothing to boast in, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any benefit from circumcision? Paul's response, verse 2, much in every way, chiefly because to them, the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. Now, the word oracles means sayings or words. They were given God's word. The Old Testament scriptures were given to the Jews to write and to preserve. Yes. But how did the people of Israel respond to this tremendous privilege? On the whole, I mean, there were faithful men throughout, of course. There was a remnant. But on the whole, the Jews have repeatedly demonstrated an utter lack of faith. They failed miserably as being the stewards of the kingdom of God, the stewards of the word of God. God, as I mentioned last week, he he had called that, he had raised that nation up to be a light unto the nations. And instead, they got stuck in their own stuff, They became arrogant and prideful and looked at themselves as we're a cut above and the rest of those Gentiles, they called them dogs. That was never God's design. Verse three, here's the objector again. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? So what this imaginary objector is saying, so they had God's word, but what if some didn't believe? I'll grant you that not all Jews have believed, but does that mean that God will go back on his promise or his promises? After all, he did choose Israel as his people, and he made definite covenants with them. The point that the objector is making here is, can the unbelief of some cause God to break his word? Verse 4, Paul's response, very strong, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and you may overcome when you are judged. So Paul's response is essentially saying, God forbid, may it never be. This is a Greek word, ginomai, and it's a really strong word. It's very emphatic. So what he's essentially saying is whenever there's a question as to whether God or man is right. You're, it, it, that's what's happening in this argument. So let's weigh this out. Is God right or is man right? You know, what's the deal? Uh, Paul, let's, let's hear this. You always have to proceed on the basis that God is right and every man is a liar. That's his point. 
It's the same point that David made. Remember after Nathan the prophet busted him for his sin with Bathsheba and having Uriah, her husband, killed out on the battle lines and all of that. A couple of years later, Nathan the prophet came, told them the story about this guy that had one little lamb and this other guy that had all these flocks and he took the little... And David said, ah, that guy's got to die. And Nathan said, "Uh, David, that's you. That's you. As David repented, he wrote Psalm 51. And what he says in Psalm 51, he says, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that, and pay attention to this, you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So Paul's saying the complete truthfulness of all that God says must be defended. And he must be vindicated every time that he's called into question by sinful man. In other words, here's God, here's man. And for man to try to presume that he is going to now make decisions on the basis of who God is, is a fool's errand. Do you realize that, and we do this, we don't do it blatantly like he's talking about here because this is blatant, he's making a point. But whenever you hear somebody say, well, my God would never fill in the blank, what they're actually doing is they're putting God in subjection to their own reasoning. And, and that's what Paul's saying here. He says, no, God forbid, may it never, no, that will not happen. That is not part of it. It will never be part of it. Don't even think about it. That's foolishness. So the point that he's making here is our sins only serve to confirm the truthfulness of God's words. And that's his point. The principle here is that man's unbelief doesn't ruin God's plan. He is not affected. We don't hinder God. We get in our own way, but we don't hinder him. So the question then becomes, is your belief, your faith, is it dependent upon men or God? I've known people that have walked away from the church because of what some man did or some woman. I will submit to you that that's a poor decision because men and women are broken. That's what we're looking at this morning. And to make to base your decisions about God upon something that a, a person has done, said, or uh, offended in some way, you're still accountable. Verse 5, he says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And then he says in parentheses, I speak as a man. So here's the objector again. He's saying, if that's the case, why does God condemn us? If our unrighteousness causes the righteousness of God to shine more gloriously, then how can God visit us with wrath? And this is deep. This is thick logic. Okay, so... If you're not getting all of it, that's fine. Just go back and watch the video or catch the podcast or whatever. But he's again, he's bouncing back and forth because he wants to drive home some very uh, important truths. He knows here that in quoting these words that he's using a typically human argument. He, this is deep stuff, but he's 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 trying to apply it by using human terms. That's why he says, I speak as a man. Verse 6. Paul's response to this this guy's argument, uh, certainly not. Again, God forbid, there's that word again. May it never be. That's how it's rendered the New American Standard. I, I love that. Uh, certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? In other words, if God is somehow handicapped in this thing, how could he judge? It's certainly, it's a rhetorical question because he knows that that's not going to be the case. 
What he's saying here is such an argument is unworthy of giving any serious consideration. It's, it's foolishness. It's, it gets right into the category of, can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? I mean, people come up with these weird things. If there were any possibility of God being unrighteous, then how could he be fit to judge the world, is Paul's point. How could he still be God if he was somehow unrighteous? Remember, he's talking to a Greek culture, and the Greeks were into big time into philosophy. And the philosophies they cooked up, the philosophies that they had, countered this. Because in their understanding, Greek gods were fallible. God's not. The objector continues in verse 7. He says, for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, then why am I still judged as a sinner? Because sin, if my sin brings glory to God, if my lie proves his truth, then how can he consistently find fault with me as a sinner? He continues in verse 8, And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we're slanderously reported as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So the objector is saying, why wouldn't it be logical to say, let us do evil so that good can come out of it? You've heard the term, does the end justify the means? That's what he's saying here, is that the end justifies the mean. If, If I can do evil so that good can come, then hey, why not do evil? It's not how it works with God. <laughs> evil is evil, and that will bring condemnation and, and the need for repentance and all of that. It's not part of his plan that you go out and live like you want, thinking, well, I'm going to bring glory to God because he's holy and just, and at the end of it, he's going to vindicate himself and his purposes in that. It's not how it works. <laughs> Paul says, he's, let me interrupt this whole thing to say that some people actually accuse us Christians of using this argument. There's a big problem here. It slanders God and it brings condemnation on men. In Hebrews chapter six, uh, this passage just speaks to this whole thing. The writer, um, and I'm not saying it was the apostle Paul. (laughs) You guys know how I feel about that. In Hebrews six, Uh, The writer says, for it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since, and this is the part I want to talk about, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. This passage is talking about apostasy, about uh, apostates, and yet... What Paul is saying here in Romans, he's saying the reason your condemnation is just is in following your flawed line of reasoning, you put Jesus back on the cross repeatedly. It doesn't work that way. The writer in Hebrews says that, Paul says that here. What he's saying is all I can say is that the condemnation of people who talk like this is well-deserved because it's blasphemous, it's heresy. So, That's the first eight verses. Now, from verses 9 to 20, Paul sets out to conclude the matter and to conclude the whole section of of chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, this whole indictment that we've been talking about. So in in verse 9, and he continues with the objector here just for this next verse, and then he gets on to some uh, other things. But he says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. 
The objector is saying, are you saying then that we Jews are better than those sinful Gentiles? That's, that was their attitude. We see that all through the Gospels. Uh, now, depending on the translation, the way it's translated, the question could also be, uh, in some versions, are we Jews worse than the Gentiles? But the answer in either case is that the Jews are no better and no worse. Why? Because all are under sin. Every one of us, every one of them, there's the they and the them, there's the we and the us, and this applies, the they and them there applies to the we and the us here. No Jew could live up to the dictates of the law. No Gentile could live up to the dictates of their own conscience. We've looked at that. So now the Apostle Paul sums up, he draws a very important conclusion here. He says that both are under sin. It's a powerful phrase. What it means is sold under sin. It's a term that the Greek word is, is... far richer, and it means that you are sold into slavery of sin, the slavery of sin. So all of this leads up to, and it parallels the next question in Paul's presentation here, because he's already asserted that the heathen are lost, the moralists are lost, the Jews are lost. We've looked at that through verse 8. Now he turns to the, the, the big question, are all men and women lost? The answer, obviously, is yes. We've already charged that all people are under the power of sin. This means that Jews are no different from Gentiles in this regard. And I'll tell you, the Jews didn't like it. Not a bit. Because what the Jew would say is, is, look, I have lived by the law of Moses. It's like the rich young ruler. I have kept all of the laws from my youth up. Jesus, what else do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus said, oh, well, if you're going to live by the law, there's always going to be one more. Go sell everything you have. Come and follow me. And he went away sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. They didn't like the fact that they could could live this burdensome life. In the law of Moses, there are 613 laws that they were charged with upholding. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day piled a whole bunch onto that. They had 70 volumes of interpretations of the obedience of those 613. That's why Jesus said, you tie up heavy loads for men. He's saying that it's not going to be on that basis. It can't be on that basis. And the Jews didn't like it. They, they're saying, are you saying that all of that was for naught? All of that, of this whole life that I've lived counts for nothing? It's exactly what he's saying. Exactly. In chapter 3, verses 10 to 18 here, the apostle now, is, he's going to do a deep dive into the Old Testament. And he's going to illustrate the extent of human depravity and demonstrate that this is not his opinion. He's going to go, he goes into the word of God. And, and this is mostly from the Psalms. There's some from Isaiah. I'm not going to make the Old Testament quotations or we would be lost. There are so many. He, this, is a, this is a conglomeration of Old Testament quotes that he puts forth here. Now, uh, the rabbis called this a pearl-stringing midrash. <laughs> what it was is a sermon that strings together a series of pearls from the scripture on a specific topic. And that's what he's doing here. Remember, Paul is highly trained in Judaism. And they would identify what he's doing here because he's going to put all of these different scriptures together to make a series of points, but essentially to arrive at one conclusion. This is the part that amounts to a 14-count indictment against every 
human being. Everybody. So we see God speaking in this, in these 14 counts. First, we see him in verses 10 to 12 speaking as a judge. And then in verses 13 to 15, he speaks as though he were a divine physician. And in verses 16 to 18, as though he were a divine historian. He goes back, talks about the history of man. At the end of it, he issues the verdict. He introduces this section with the statement, as it is written. Why? Again, he's saying, folks, this ain't my opinion. This is the word of God. And he used the word of God to to drive home the points that he was making because he wanted to stand on the authority of the word of God. That's a great practice for us. Otherwise, you say some kid was eight when he was 12. Seriously, though, it doesn't get any heavier than this. This is the verdict. This is the divine verdict on humanity. This is it. He says, as it is written, he's connecting them to what God had inspired human authors to write. Uh, but we know that the, the, uh, the author was God. It's one of the most forceful passages in the scripture, and it deals with the total depravity of man. As I said, don't walk out of here all bummed out because good news is coming. Not going to get to it this week, but just a teensy bit right at the end. But good news is coming. He's got to be able to illustrate this. He's got to show that it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile or Armenian or Russian or Canadian or Mexican or American or whatever. It doesn't matter. All of those lines are erased when it comes to the gospel. What it means, too, is that uh, this depravity that he's talking about doesn't mean that every person is as bad as he or she could be. Understand that? I know a lot of people that, you know... and I'll use air quotes, are good people. What it means is that sin has affected every part of his or her being, and consequently there's nothing anyone can do to commend themselves to God. You stand powerless, as good a person as you are. So the first thing we look at here in verse 10 is, is God is the judge. And he, he, Paul says, as it is written, and here's the first count, there is none righteous, no, not one. Well, you know, I did some checking on this. When God says that there's none righteous, you want to know why? Because there are none righteous. N-O-N-E, none. None of us can stand in our own stuff. None of us can say, look at me. And sometimes we do that, honestly, but it doesn't count. He's saying that there's none righteous. Not the heathen idolater, not the moralistic person, the churchy person even, not the Jew. None are righteous except one. His name is Jesus. He was born as a man, fully man, fully God. Grew up, went to the cross so that his righteousness could be transferred to you. That's what we're going to look at next week. In verse 11, we see the second and the third counts of this indictment. He says, there's none who understands. The word there, understands, it means there's none who comprehends. This is talking about deeper than having head knowledge, okay? This is a, this is a, a comprehension. It's deeper. It, it's, it's saying that, that you have the ability to evaluate the things of God. And you see, there's none. Zero. Jesus said, when I go, it's to your advantage that I go, because unless I go, the helper, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, can't come. And when he comes, he'll lead you into all truth. He is your teacher. It's prophesied all the way back in Jeremiah 31 that we have one teacher, 
And that's God in the person of the Holy Spirit. He says there's in verse 11 also, there's none who seeks after God. When a man or a woman seeks after God, truth be told, they generally seek after their own idea of God. Look around, folks. Look at the gods that people create. I, this lowercase g God that's there for my convenience, and I can just fold them up and put them in my back pocket when I don't want to deal. And it doesn't work that way. Jesus, in John chapter 4, with the, the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman had, had honestly said, you know, as she's starting to kind of warm to him because she was very put off to begin with, and she says, you know, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and this is a, a mountain called Mount Gerizim, way north of Jerusalem. Uh, right, uh, the city, the larger city at the base of the hill is Shechem, where Abraham lived and all. Uh, but just south of that was Sychar, Sychar, I don't know how to pronounce it. Let's just act like I do. At any rate, and that's where she was in the little town just south of Shechem. And she's pointing up at Mount Gerizim, evidently, and saying, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews worship in Jerusalem. In, in chapter 4, verse 21 of the Gospel of John, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. In other words, you worship a God of your own making. We know what we worship for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is because he's standing in front of her when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Get this, for the Father is seeking the Father is seeking. None seeks after God. The Father is seeking such to worship him. Beautiful passage. Chapter, verse 12, uh, we see actually there are three of these counts here, the fourth, fifth, and sixth. He says in verse 12, he says, they've all turned aside. He's speaking of his universal apostasy. Look at the world in which we live. Look at what has gone on in the last 40 or 50 years. Look at the utter decline of the church not just in the United States, but globally. Look at the assault that's going on. I'll talk about that in a bit. They've all turned aside. I was talking to a brother. I had lunch with a guy that's a pastor over in Canby this week, and we were talking about a common church that we both came from in Southern Oregon. It was a big church, and he said, yeah, you know, in the last number of years, it's declined by hundreds of people. Just because people, there's a shift you got to be intentional. You got to, and I know that's a word that's pushed around in our society a lot, but you do. You have to be intentional about remaining in fellowship. The Word of God says, don't forsake the assembling yourselves together, as is the habit of some, and as is the habit of more and more these days. Don't turn aside. It's dangerous. And not just because we have potlucks after church, which I'm really looking forward to. <laughs> However, we need each other. I was talking with uh, Lee before church, and we were talking about how good it is to be under one roof again. And yeah, are there risks with COVID? Of course, and, and that's just the world we live in. But, but to be able to gather together, there is something, and I want to say supernatural, that takes place when we assemble together as the body of Christ. It's the opposite of what he's saying here when he says they've all turned aside. But we're redeemed. He's talking about the world. They don't care. The fifth thing he says here. They, to, uh, they have together become unprofitable. The word translated unprofitable, it was used by the Greeks concerning rotten fruit or something that was rotten. 
He's saying they, they, they together become rotten, essentially. What he's saying here is the human race is useless and worse than useless to God. That's how man is in his unregenerate state. That's why Paul can say confidently in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I love the but God. We're going to look at that at the end of the message this morning. He says, but God being rich in mercy saved us. What he's saying here, uh, again, this Greek word, it means uh, whatever was utterly and irrevocably bad and therefore useless. Powerful word. Now, I want to pause for just a second and I want to remind you because <laughs> we're in the middle of this heavy passage, this, this absolute clamping down of the judgment of God on humanity. Folks, remember the purpose my purpose, the God's, Paul's purpose here, that is unless we take these things to heart, we will miss the depth of love which motivated God to send his son to wash us by his grace, to wash us in his blood, to die for us. That's what Paul is doing. I mean, you've got to look at this. You've got to see your own depravity. I don't care what a good person you are. I, I have told people many times, I, yeah, I'm not in, I, I am not in any life-dominating sin. And yet I know what I'm capable of. I know what this flesh can generate. I know that this old nature that we all do battle with, uh, that I don't want to give it a place. The results are disastrous in the life of a believer. So the second thing here, he shifts, and, he, and he, now he puts on uh, uh, this, uh, the aspect of, of God as this divine physician. In verse 13, uh, Warren Wearsby uh, is a guy I love to read. Uh, he calls this an x-ray study of the lost sinner. <laughs> it's like you turned on, you put the guy on a, on, a, on a slab and you turned on the x-ray machine and you see everything about him. And Paul, because, and what he does is he starts using body parts here and he looks at the, the, the human condition from the top to the bottom. He begins with the head and he moves down to the feet. Uh, and and Again, fascinating literature. I love the analogy that he uses. And he's, again, he's cherry picking. And a lot of times I will caution people, don't cherry pick the word of God. It gets yourself into trouble. Well, you go with this verse here, but not that verse over there. That's not what he's doing here. But he is picking, he's selecting passages of scripture to reinforce the fact that he's saying that all men are shut up under sin. In verse 13, we see again, we see three of these counts in this indictment, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth. The seventh is their throat is an open tomb. The eighth, with their tongues, they have practiced deceit. And the ninth, the poison of asps is under their lips. There's some vivid imagery. It's a picture of physician. When you go to the doctor's office, what's the first thing he wants to do? He wants to look down your throat. Gets the old wooden tongue. Those things are scratchy. Gets that thing, he's opening your mouth, no, wider, okay, now say ah, and all of that. Yeah, that's the picture here, is this, is he's, when he says, <laughs> he says, their throat is an open tomb. What he's saying, again, again using this word picture, is, is that as you investigate one's health, in this case, spiritual health, that they are found to be openly, morally rotten and putrid and decayed. Their throat is an open tomb. That's, that's, that's imagery. This isn't hidden. This is out in the open. He's saying that, yeah, metaphorically, I'm using somebody's throat, but this is the condition of man. When he talks about deceit, folks, deceit is the practice. It's not the exception. 
of the human condition, the human race. You know, when he says with their tongues they practice deceit, how many of us have deceived? I remember my kids were growing up and they would try to do these little word wrangling things. And my daughter especially because she was very boisterous and and she said, well, I didn't do that. And you know that she did. And she would try to find some legal way to maneuver around. And I would say, Jessica, even if you're not lying, that's deceit. And the old saying, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. And it is the condition of the human race. Every one of us has deceived. Every one of us has been deceived as well. So now when he, he talks about the poison of asps is under their lips. This is, again, powerful picture. The physician continues. This is the hidden poisonous snake. If you picture a, a, a poisonous snake, when they're at rest, their fangs are retracted back under their lips. That's what he's saying here. And, and those fangs don't come out until that snake is ready to bite. When he rears his head and those fangs come out, just as, and what he's saying is that people are like that. The poison of asps is under their lips. They don't come out until they rear back to strike. That have my notes here. Ack. <laughs> but if you dealt with people like that, maybe you are a person like that. I don't know. Are you eager to strike? Do you lash out? That's what he's talking about. Part of the human condition is that when we feel threatened, we feel that you know, some assault on, on what we said or how we behave, whatever it is, that we lash out. That's the picture. In verse 14, the 10th count, he says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Folks, it doesn't take rocket science to know that we fall into this one. Have somebody in front of you sit at the stoplight for a few extra seconds. Guilty. God's working on all of us. How many times I've sat with a couple whose marriage was troubled as a pastor, grieved at the interaction between. How often I've known, I say this kind of comically, but, but it still fits, uh, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. I know how to push my siblings' buttons. I know how to push my wife's buttons. And I don't do it. I know it's good for me. Happy wife, happy life, all that. But the point is, that's our condition, full of cursing, bitterness. Look around. Look at the culture we live in. Look at the society that, that we see evolving before our very eyes. Deceitful, bitter. Verse 15, the 11th count of this indictment against man. This is their feet are swift to shed blood. You know, since Cain, man has always had violence in his heart. We know that. But again, look around. I, I started to go down a road and I, and I backed off of it because it was, it, well, number one, there was way more information than I wanted for this particular study. But I started to look at, I was going to say, okay, what are the increases in crime statistics from 2019 to 2020? And I went, oh, wow, there's a lot here. In many cases, double the crime rate, violent crime rate. Yeah, their feet are swift to shed blood. The dramatic increases in violent crime, murder, assault, shootings, they're increasing primarily because society is stressed 
and Christianity, the church, is being mar- marginalized as we, as we sit. The church is in decline. I've told you folks many times, we have the answers. Not because we're all that and more, but because we have God's word. And we have the answers to the, the strife that's out there. We, I, and I have told people many times over the years, I can't affect your circumstances. I don't have the ability. I don't have the power to do that. But I can show you from God's word how to live well within them. And that's the difference. Finally, uh, we go into the aspect of this all-seeing divine historian of fallen man. In verse 16, the twelfth count of the indictment. Destruction and misery are in their ways. What an epitome of human history. Why do those promoting a progressive agenda want to rewrite it? Because it's awful in some way. Yeah, and I, 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 they want to rewrite our, our the American history. We see people out there with this progressive agenda saying, well, let's rewrite it. And then we'll, we'll make it worse in some ways. And, and they have some terrible motives behind it. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm just going to, I am going to go down this road a little bit. Why do we call killing children progressive? We call it progressive? Really? Why do we call destroying nations from within progressive? We call tearing down institutions of law and order progressive. We see a global assault on the living church being carried out under the banner of progressivism. Folks, these things are not progress. It's a lie. It gives something a nice handy label. And we rename things. It's deceit. It's awful. And I mean, pro-choice. No, why don't you just say it like it is? Pro-murder? And planned parenthood? Really? You've got to understand what's behind the veil. And it's evil. Destruction and misery are the result of man's ways. That's just one particular set of comments. I could go on and on. You want to take a good look at the depravity of man? Yeah, of course. I am inviting all of us to take a look at our own hearts. But look around. Look at how the world is poised to self-destruct. Reading articles this week about Russia being poised with the Ukraine about China being poised with Taiwan, about other nations where there's conflict, and looking at the birth pangs that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Matthew, and just saying, oh, Lord, just come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, because destruction and misery are their ways. Verse 17, the 13th account, in the way of peace, they have not known. It reminded me of a passage in 2 Corinthians. I used to have a plaque on my wall because I thought that this was a really nice kind of rosy poetic passage. <laughs> but I realized it's not. And, and, and the plaque stayed, but I, I gained deeper understanding as I studied <laughs> God's word. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, the Apostle Paul says, but as it is written, the same way that he starts this section here, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. It's not a rosy poetic statement. It's a rebuke on the unbelieving, unregenerate man. He's saying they have no idea what God has in store for those that love him. The way of peace, they have not known. That's the point he's making there. It's the point he's making here. Real peace has only one source. It's found in a person, not in a concept. 
You can go to self-help seminars all day long, all week long, and they'll talk about how you can have a more peaceful life. Those are concepts. They don't do well with the fallen nature. Because at the end of that seminar, you still have a fallen nature. You still are going to be prone to stress, strife. That's why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. That's why Paul in, in Philippians, he talks about having peace with God being the only condition to having the peace of God. Because you can't have the peace of God until you have peace with God. We'll get to that in a few minutes. The alternative? Heartbreak, strife, loneliness, despair. That's what living on your own easily can come to. Verse 18, the 14th and final count here in this verdict. He says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. This last count explains all of the others. This is sort of the capstone of this indictment that he's talking about. Because man's true spiritual condition is nowhere more clearly seen than in the absence of a proper submission to and reverence for God. I'm going to talk about what a biblical fear of God looks like. It has two parts. Now, many times in Bible studies over the years, whenever somebody would talk about the fear of God, they'd come to a passage of the fear of God and say, well, that means reverence. Yes, it does. But there's more. There's two sides. There's reverence. There's awe of his greatness and his glory. But as we've looked at here in Romans, there is also dread for the results of violating his holy nature. So yes, awe and dread. Both are part of having a healthy understanding of what the biblical fear of God is. I'll tell you what, folks, I have been to the woodshed with dad in significant ways over the last 38, 39, whatever years I've been a Christian. I don't want to go to the woodshed. I don't want to experience his chastising hand. And he chastens all that he loves. And so wear that like a badge. But the point is, I fear what God can do. He will shout as loudly into your life as he needs to, to get your attention. Because he loves you. To the unbelieving soul, he will allow things. And there have been times where I have, and and it, it really bugs me because it's like, Lord, I hope I'm getting this right where he has prevented me from going further and coming alongside to help someone because he's spoken to me and shown me that person's not at the, at the place where I can reach them yet. Don't you go prop them up because you're going to get in the way of what I want to do. Again, that has to be discerned. And if you have someone or someones in your life that you can share with things like that, because those are things that you've got to be really careful on because we are called to have mercy. We are called to be generous. We are called to come alongside those who are less fortunate. And there are times where God is working, the fear of God. In verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The Jews received the written law through Moses. We've looked at that. The Gentiles had the works of the law written on their hearts. We've looked at that. Paul expounds on both in this section of Romans. So that both groups are fully accountable to God. When he says every mouth stopped, all the world guilty, this is the verdict. That's what he's getting at. He has just finished this whole thing and he has gone down the list and talked about the condition of man, the utter depravity of the human heart. And now he's pronouncing... God is pronouncing the verdict on sinful man. Every mouth will be stopped. 
All of the world, every single one, guilty. It's the verdict handed down from God on the human race. Verse 20. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No flesh will be justified on the basis of law. Whether it's Jew on the law of Moses or Gentile on the law written in his heart. God gave people his law so they could understand their need for grace. Not so that they could try to earn their way into his favor. If you are trying to earn kissy points with God, stop it. It's not going to amount to anything. Actually, it's an aspect of pride and self-righteousness. you got to know, folks, if you belong to Jesus this morning, that he is pleased with you. Not on the basis of things you've done in your own righteousness, but on the basis of what he did and now transferring that righteousness to us. What a beautiful love story this is. We can try to do perfectly what God's moral law requires, but we'll find out that it's not possible, that we stall. The verdict is guilty. But, I love verse 21. But now, I don't have it up there. It says, but now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. And that's where we're going to pick up next week. Because praise God, this is the end of the section on the bad news. And if you don't come out of here thinking, man, that's really bad news, you haven't been listening. <laughs> this is really tough stuff. However, Good news is coming, and I mean it's coming. In this section that we're getting into, I, I kind of went a, a little selfishly. I wanted to go through this last 20 verses kind of quickly <laughs> because I want to get to the good stuff. It's really good because we're going to look at the righteousness of God apart from the law, how it is revealed. It's revealed, in again, not in, not in a doctrine, but in a person. His name is Jesus. Died for you, died for me. If you're watching online or perhaps you're here and you've never had a relationship with Jesus and perhaps the things that you've listened to and looked at this morning from God's word have produced a sense of conviction in your own heart. Perhaps you've been in a place where you're a Christian, but you've been walking on the edge, living close to the line, trying to make sure you don't slip over. But I'll guarantee you, if you try to live close to the edge, you'll slip over. For both of these groups, I want to assure you that the grace of God is real. It's sturdy. It's dependable. And he wants to shower his grace on your life. If you don't know the Lord this morning, you can fix that with a simple prayer saying something like, God, I've lived my life away from you. I see according to these things that we're looking at in Romans that I've lived my life in rebellion towards you. And that has produced a verdict on my life. I don't want to face judgment. I want mercy. If that's you, then then simply pray and ask God to forgive you for your sins, to cleanse you, and to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And he will give you illumination, divine illumination. And it comes to everyone. That's part of why these things are foolishness to people in the world, because they don't get that there is a supernatural transaction that takes place. It's a miracle. The new birth is an absolute miracle. And if you want that, ask God. He'll give it to you. If you've been in a place where, as I mentioned, perhaps these things have nudged you, the Holy Spirit has nudged you, you're thinking, Lord, I I, want to live with that sense of abandon towards you. Because he calls us, folks, to, to live sold out wall to wall for Jesus Christ. 
the, the words of the hymn, the, the things of earth become strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. That's the life that he offers us. We can choose. We can still be Christians. We can choose to live life just kind of scrapping through. Or we can enjoy victory. We can enjoy rest and peace even in really lousy circumstances. Because he never promised that we wouldn't go through stuff. But he does promise that he'll walk through us, through it with us. Let's pray. Father, just this whole passage in Romans just tickles me. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Lord, that there is such encouragement, such hope that comes uh, here at the end of chapter 3 and on through this glorious book. Lord, I pray for each person here, each person watching online, that you would give us divine illumination, that we wouldn't walk out feeling bummed, that we wouldn't come away feeling bummed or or condemned somehow, but that, uh, that you would take our lives as we hold it up to you and to your glory and we see how flawed and how broken we are that we would throw ourselves upon your mercy, that we would throw ourselves upon your grace and as a result, discover a life that's truly worth living. Lord, search our hearts. As the psalmist says, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. That's our desire. That's our heart this morning. We pray that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen.